Good evening. Welcome to the Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies. This is the last episode of season one, which has been entirely about monsters. For those of you who have been listening from the beginning, thank you for your support. 420 of you have dared to unravel the stories behind some of Hollywood's most iconic monsters. For those of you who are new, here's what you missed. Monsters are stories about things we're made to fear so that we don't have to focus on real problems. In 1931, the monster movies were born from an infamous group called the Universal Monsters that included Frankenstein and Dracula. And each of those monsters created a script for expressing attention or anxiety about something unspoken. Now, I say script because if we've seen over and over again in the episodes that I've talked about, these same monsters come back through time in new stories to make the same fears for the same reason. That's the problem with the stories we tell ourselves, especially now in this period of time when we've hit postmodernism. We've been telling the same ones over and over again that we've lost sight of their origins. Like in modern music, you know, when you realize, you know, there's a brand new song out, but it's a sample of your favorite aughts song, only to find out that that aughts song was sampled from your mom's favorite 80s song, only to find out that that 80s song was originally a song from the 50s. This podcast, this podcast is taking you to the root of this quote-unquote evil and showing you how it was fabricated to scare you and why. That's entirely what season one is about. Now, this last episode is personal because it coincides with the first time I had the story of my life unravel before me. I was 19 years old. I was living in Santa Cruz, California. I went to college there, and I had to make a choice between my own personal justice and my relationship with my mother. It was a choice that I had seen before somewhere, but I couldn't quite place it. So that night, I went for a really long walk on the boardwalk in town. And um, that boardwalk in Santa Cruz is made famous for its very unusual occupants. Hippies, um, transients, and of course, vampires. And then I realized I knew where I had seen this choice before. It was in the movie The Lost Boys. And it took place right on that very boardwalk 13 years prior. Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. It's fun to be a vampire. This is the tagline for the 1987 hit film The Lost Boys, directed by Joel Schumacher. It could also describe the 10 years between 1980 and 1989, where rampant cocaine use, rock and roll, plastic surgery, and indulgence in the illusion of being forever young took root. It's also called the 80s, and it functioned as a sort of puberty period for America. Since 1987, The Lost Boys has become a cult classic, indicative of the decade showcasing the best of 80s fashion, hair, music, and styling that makes it rife with nostalgia. Also, this star-studded cast, Diane Weiss, Jason Patrick, Jamie Gertz, Kiefer Sutherland, and of course, the Corys, Haim and Feldman, respectively, were 80s royalty, each with previous credits and generation-defining cinematic masterpieces like Footloose, Stand By Me, and Less Than Zero. This brood of talent at the helm of St. Elmo's fire director Joel Schumacher 
resurrected vampire lore from the campy parodies and exploitation films of the 70s and made it cool again. So to briefly return to episode one, you know, Dracula was the first major film about the vampire. Um, He's the most recognizable of the universal monsters next to Frankenstein. But unlike Frankenstein, he's the title character. Dracula, in his blood-sucking vampiric ways to end your life and sustain his immortality, that's the thing to be feared. Also, unlike Frankenstein, the stories being told in Dracula are pretty on the nose, right? Dracula represents our anxieties around xenophobia, which is a fear of influence of people from other countries, namely communist countries. Also, a fear of bisexuality or pansexuality, someone who desires anyone and who tempts everyone. Remember, Dracula was released the same year as Frankenstein, so the exact same soil of all of those factors, you know, depression and influx of immigrants, people joining the Communist Party, rejecting capitalism, all of those factors helped birth Dracula. He became the poster child for those fears and anxieties. People with funny accents wanting to suck your blood and other things, and you should be very afraid, blah, blah, blah. In the uh, 70s and 90s, with the rise of the queer movement, you saw the same patterns of revivals with Dracula that you saw with Frankenstein, but much less coded. Interview with a Vampire from the beloved Anne Rice novels is quite literally about gay-ish vampires. I was in the movie theater watching Interview with the Vampire with my family when it first came out. And there's this scene where Antonio Banderas and, and Brad Pitt are standing in the hallway like saying goodbye to each other. And in this moment, in any other movie, these characters would totally kiss. During this scene, in the movie theater, you could hear a pin drop from this tension of like, will they or won't they? So I heard several audible exhales of like, oh, thank God, that they hadn't kissed. People were boiling over with tension that their beloved Brad Pitt would kiss a guy in a movie. Oh, God, no, no. So he didn't. And, you know, Dracula is not discreet in its anxieties. Vampires were synonymous with sex long before True Blood gave us all that bad, bad V. Okay? So, knowing this about vampires, what do we make of this coming-of-age story that has as its focus a boy turning into a vampire, which is the plot of the film The Lost Boys? Lost Boys is not about sex. It's about the construction of a non-nuclear family, which seems strange. So, to break down the plot, it's about Michael and Sam, who move with their single mom Lucy to a new new town called Santa Clara. They're living with their quirky grandfather after their parents' divorce. Upon exploring this new town, Michael and Sam are quickly enveloped into the strange world of Santa Clara. Michael, while watching (laughs) arguably one of the sexiest sax solos ever played by a man in tight jeans, meets Star a manic pixie dream girl and her maybe boyfriend david who's the head of this like leather biker gang of sorts sam meets two comic book shop owners named edgar and alan frog there's a twist who tease out that santa clara is fraught with danger only they know how to handle namely blood sucking vampires <laughs> michael in his attempt to court star is pulled into this biker gang of sorts and dared to do very dangerous things like drink blood, hang off bridges, and have unprotected sex in an underground cave with a girl he barely knows. Totes Joe. After that date, Michael starts to experience changes. One night, when he's watching his brother Sam while his mom is out, 
he's suddenly overcome with this desperate hunger. Now his hunger is set on his younger brother, who, for some strange reason, at the ripe age of 14, is prone to taking bubble baths. His, uh, Michael attacks his brother, but it's present, like, it's prevented by their wise and protective husky gog named Nanook. If you ever seen Nanook of the North, you would know that that is a reference to the movie Nanook of the North. Now Sam, because of the Frog Brothers, is really now well informed on how to spot and kill a vampire. So he enlists their help to save Michael before he's fully turned. They band together with Michael, Star, and Laddie, an 11-year-old child without parents or anyone but Star looking out for him for some reason, to try and kill these vampires. Now, if you're wondering, why are they doing all of this without parent supervision? It's because their mom, Lucy, is focused on dating her boss, Max, the owner of the video store. That's right. Santa Clara is where Lucy is trying to get her groove back. But her dates keep, you know, they can continue to get thwarted by all these different circumstances. First, it's Max's protective dogs, then it's Lucy's protective kids. They try one last time at a restaurant, leaving the kids at home. The finale is where the A story, Michael is struggling not to turn into a vampire, and the B story, Lucy is trying to start a new family, collide. When David and his remaining vampires descend upon the house, Michael, Sam, Star, and the Frog Brothers fight them off. Lucy and Max return home to find the chaos and it's revealed then that Max is the head vampire. This entire time, he's been wanting Lucy to become his vampire bride and have her boys join his boys in one 1980s demonic-style Brady Bunch. But not so fast. Michael, no, mostly vampire, takes on Max for the honor of his mother. Just when you think all is lost, in drives Grandpa home from his date, literally driving stakes through the heart of Max breaking the spell over Michael, over Star, over Laddie, and saving the day. Now, the last image is covered in dust, sweat, and vampire guts. Michael, Lucy, and Sam, this non-nuclear family, stand huddled together, thankful to be alive. They watch as Grandpa gets out of his truck, walks to his fridge for a root beer. Lucy asks if he's okay, and he coldly replies, One thing about living in Santa Clara I never could stomach, all the damn vampires. As he closes the fridge door, it cuts back to a stunned Lucy, Michael, and Sam and fades to black over their reactions at this revelation. Because this is the last episode, we don't have to pull any punches. Right? We've talked a lot about the gaze and editing in this podcast. And, you know, after all, movies are about what you see and hear, even if both of those things are nothing. So together, you and I can really deconstruct this using everything that you've learned thus far. So when a film decides to leave its main character stunned as the darkness closes in on them, there's a story it's telling. Let's decode that together. In The Lost Boys, here's what I think that last line is telling us. Now, Plot-wise, the entire time, Grandpa knew a secret and didn't share it with the family. But the subtext of that is that the chaos that they've just survived is quite normal for these parts. This is not the end of anything. This is just merely Tuesday. It's the second part, the subtext, that makes The Lost Boys stand out to me, because it signals a change in the genre and the construction of the monster that is the truest statement of the problem with horror films. Monsters that we discussed 
are anything but normal. That's the point of them. They are supposed to be all of our fears and anxieties projected onto one specific thing. A shark, a bisexual, a murderer. And once that thing is dead, the world returns to normal. But not here. Not in Santa Clara. In Santa Clara, they know the truth. The world is full of monsters, and everyone knows it, and we simply learn to live with it. Can you imagine Frankenstein this way? Like, yep, that doctor just keeps bringing these dead bodies back to life. <laughs> Some are fine, others kill people. Damn shame. Anyway, can you pass me that salt? This never happens in monster movies, because it just doesn't, right? But in life, this damn shame pass the salt. This happens all the time. Priests continue to rape children, but moving them around and paying millions in secret settlements is absolutely the best way to address this. Police officers continue shooting and killing unarmed black people who are not breaking any laws, but America is absolutely not racist. And one of the most overlooked? If people knew Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in a wheelchair, they never would have elected him president. But no, 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 no. All, all people are equal. This is the fucking story we've been told forever. The world is unfair, and we must learn to live with it. And and you see racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, classism, poverty, pollution, subversion, lies, hate, oppression, war, plastic, chaos, addiction. We've been asked to live with all of these things for a long time. When we fight back and evolve and try to change, we're met with resistance and punishment. And why? Because these monsters are constructed as part of our normal. Every code we are presented is geared toward convincing us to interpret them as normal. Now, this wasn't always true. We didn't have all the evidence so blatantly in our face before. The message in media used to be very clearly a message. So I want you to think about an ad from the 1950s. Nothing about those ads are subtle. We all make fun of them today, right? Hey, Jim, how's that delicious can of fluffo made from creamy egg whites and real whole milk? Connie, I just love my Brillo scrubbles. I can do a house full of dishes in just one soak. In movies from 1930 to 1960, we saw the construction of genre, meaning the laying down of the rules. Because movies were so much different than real life, it was easier for people to create emotional distance between what they were seeing on screen versus life. Now, in the 50s, with the introduction of the television, that distance began to erode because content was now in the home environment. When TVs went from black and white to color in the 60s, what was on screen more resembled real life, so the distance shortened still. Now, go watch the entire series of Mad Men and look what happened to advertising in the 70s to see its impact on media, which in some was paramount to making things abnormal, like dying of lung cancer, seem like a totally acceptable risk for living the good life that comes with smoking. Then, the nail in the coffin of emotional distance in media, the 80s. Cable explosion, 24-hour news cycle that blasted into every living room, along with music videos, which were now mini-movies set to music, talking billboards, and VHS in VHS porn. So, how is it possible, with all the evidence to back it up, that we still believe that we're not racist, that the Catholic Church isn't harboring pedophiles, and that America sees all people as equal? Well, in short, it's postmodernism. Our stories are so coded with competing symbols and metadata that people don't know what to believe anymore. Or better yet, and better put, they don't understand the roots of what they're saying anymore because the real, symbolic, and imaginary realms we spoke about in the introduction of this podcast have collapsed. 
in order to see what I'm talking about, we're going to have to travel back to the 1980s to see how. So at first, postmodernism was basically an architectural concept with emerged in the 1960s. It was a reaction to the austerity, formality, and the lack of variety in modern architecture. Those mid-century modern things we're currently obsessed with? Yes, this was a revolt against that. So think of Ikea, where everything is the same. Well, everything that you see is basically a copy of like a really vintage-looking Danish original that is extremely expensive. And so we take that, make copies of it that are much cheaper so that everyone can own it. That's what modernism did. So modernism essentially destroyed the concept of the original, or one-of-a-kind thing. There's a book called The Postmodern Condition, a report on knowledge that came out in 1979 by the philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard, sorry for the French, who actually introduced the term postmodernism to philosophy and social sciences. So what he said was, um, simplifying it to the extreme, I define postmodern as incredulity towards meta-narratives. Meta-narratives are narratives about narratives of historical meaning, experience, or knowledge, right? So why am I obsessed with the truth behind the stories in our media? Because I was born in the time of the great crossover between what we assumed was real versus knowing it's a myth. So very famous postmodernist thinkers like Roland Barthes, uh, Jean Baudrillard, Jacques Derrida, and Michel Foucault. Those are some names that you might be more familiar with. My favorite, Baudrillard, in the book Symbolic Exchange and Death from 1976, uses Lacan's concept of symbolic, the imaginary, and the real to develop his concept. Baudrillard argues that all of these realities have become simulations, that is, signs without any referent because the real and the imaginary have been absorbed into the symbolic. Now, for those of you who have forgotten, the real is an object in reality, right? A tree. The symbolic is a representation of that tree in, say, a painting or a photograph. The tree existed and was captured in a symbolic representation of that tree. The imaginary? That's any tree in anyone's mind eye, right? The tree doesn't have to exist for it to be imagined. In movies, the real, symbolic, and imaginary get really complicated. On the internet, even more so. And NFTs literally explode the concept of real versus symbolic versus imagined and how you apply that to capitalism. Now, in movies, you can recognize the postmodern aesthetic by identifying these specific key traits. Number one, semiotic excess. What I mean by that is this sort of sign bombardment. Signs and symbols everywhere that reference everything. There's a term called bricolage, and it means to bring things together, disparate things together, to make a completely new thing. An easy way that you can understand this concept is if you ever go on TikTok. When someone stitches one video of one person doing something of their own, like let's say a person is like pointing to things that pop up on the screen, and then somebody else stitches that to theirs, and then they point to their own set of things, You have so many signs and symbols and narrating happening at once, it's a bombardment galore. That's what we mean by semiotic excess. So two is fragmentation, where things are not presented as whole. So the stability of an individual is replaced by subjectivity. We talked about subjectivity in the gaze. In in books, you can talk about it as like an unreliable narrator. 
we really learn this specifically when we're talking about basic instinct and i told you all about film noir right you get headlines and snippets and not full stories because there's no such thing as a full story any longer because there is no set stable truth now three you know we have blurring of boundaries between established ideas fact versus fiction reality versus virtual etc so all semiotic excess fragmentation blurring of boundaries leads us to this fourth aesthetic piece which is a hyperspace or hyper reality so what i mean by hyperspace and hyper reality is that they're creating a space that is better than reality so think of the metaverse social media a place where everyone is still seemingly connected but not in reality reality is recreated but it's still in dialogue with your real life this phenomenon that i'm talking about is called intertextuality or referentiality where we have these meta narratives. Remember the other ugly duckling from the intro really being a story about Hans Christian Andersen's life? Well, that's a meta narrative and it extends to like class systems and hierarchies of power. So, intertextuality takes three different forms that we see very very often in film. Parody, which is a reference to the original project and it critiques it. So think of the movie Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods is a parody horror film where it actually implores all the different various ways that horror films operate, but it uses it to critique those very constructions, right? That's a form of intertextuality. Now, pastiche is a reference to the original thing, but without the critique, right? So La La Land is a perfect example of a pastiche right? It does all the same camera shots, it does the dances, it does the things, but there's no criticism, right? It's not saying anything other than, oh, look at this beautiful thing we did back then, we can do it again now. And then nostalgia. Nostalgia is a replication of the original with new characters to evoke the exact same emotions and connections related to that exact time period for the purpose of immediate consumption. Now, literally every boot like reboot you've seen nowadays does this right also i know some of you are very partial to it but stranger things is this exactly all stranger things wants you to do is care about this movie the way that you cared about goonies or et or any of the other movies that it references um apologies to those who are triggered by that so what happens though is that we've reached this place of such deep intertextuality that we've lost sight of the original references. So in a sense, you create what Baudrillard calls a simulacrum, a copy without an original. In his book, Simulacra and Simulations from 1981, he interrogates the relationships among symbols, reality, and society. He says, simulacra are copies that depict things that either had no reality to begin with or that no longer have an original. Simulation is the imitation of the operation of a real-world process or system over time. The simulacrum is never that which conceals the truth. It is the truth which conceals that there is none. The simulacrum is true. What he's saying is that over time, reality has been replaced by this simulation. Nothing is real. Hint, we're in the matrix. All of this is the matrix. No, he breaks down how we've gone from living in reality to a simulation in four steps. See if you recognize when over the last 20 years, we've achieved these things and you've experienced these things in real time. 
So the stage that I want to talk about first is the first stage, right? It is a faithful image or a copy where we believe that a sign is a, quote, reflection of profound reality. Now, two, the second stage is a perversion of that reality. We see this image and we're like, that doesn't faithfully reveal reality to us, but it hints that there is a real world and this copy could never be it, right? Now, the third stage is masking the absence of that profound reality and the simulacrum pretends to be a faithful copy. Now, without an original though, it's better than reality. It's hyper real. He states this so eloquently. He, he talks about an order of sorcery where a regime of semantic algebra of human meaning is conjured artificially to appear to reference truths. I mean, what a sentence. And fourth, of course, is pure simulation, where nothing is real. Signs reflect other signs and give evidence to a truth that is also profoundly manufactured. It's a snake eating its own tail. Now, here's a use case to give you context for how this works. 2006, Facebook was created to allow people from all over the world to connect online. It was to allow real-world connections to exist in an online space. Stage one. In 2010, Farmville was the number one game on Facebook. People were spending real money and a lot of actual time farming a fake farm. People laughed and were adamant that this would never replace our real world. Stage two. In 2012, Obama's campaign was able to leverage Facebook ads to reach young people in minority communities previously untapped for political campaigns. Facebook became the legitimate form for political engagement for all who were really interested in politics. That is where you turned to for, quote, real news. Stage three. In 2016, we saw that form for what it really was. A simulation game called, what would happen if everything we said about Hillary Clinton was a lie? Stage four. That's essentially what Robert Mueller told us about the election of Donald Trump. It was his grandpa moment. Now, imagine him walking into the congressional floor, sitting down at the mic and leaning in saying, Senators, the one thing I cannot stomach about the 2016 election, all the goddamn foreign interference by Russia to stop Hillary Clinton from becoming our first female president. Mic drop, fade out. Now that we understand how postmodernist theory works, we can discuss the conflation of these signs and symbols in films. Now we're going to look at two examples of how postmodernism works to complicate our ways of storytelling. So, La La Land is a really perfect example of how this doesn't work. So La La Land is a pastiche. It has every reference to musicals of the golden age of Hollywood, but no critique. Now, it's a straight-up visual masterpiece, but it suffers from the same flaws that the original movies that it's based on suffer from. Why? Because it's still a film where white people teach people about jazz, which is culturally and historically inaccurate. They went to all that trouble getting the sets right, the songs right, the dance steps right, the lighting right, but someone forgot to crack a history book and see the history of jazz. No, here's a fun fact. I took the history of jazz in college. I failed it, actually, because it was at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning during the winter quarter, and it was held in the music auditorium. So at 9 a.m., I would drag my soggy, wet body into a warm, dark auditorium where a professor played jazz music on a grand piano. 
I was out in like three minutes. Now, those are some of the best naps I've ever had in my life. Nonetheless, in all the readings, I didn't learn about a single white person. So even I, who failed the history of jazz, could have called bullshit on that film pre-green light. Okay? Pre-green light. So just because something can mimic the past and a pastiche isn't going to elevate it or, or make it more relevant or fix all of the problems. <laughs> no, 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 no. But now we're going to look at another example. This is, this is postmodernism in, in its truest form, how it works and works really well. We're going to talk about the film Get Out. Jordan Peele took the established rules of the horror genre and grounded them in a widely shared terror of black experiences in all white spaces. The tension in that movie is racist white envy of blackness, and it is executed perfectly. Now, there are numerous podcasts that give you a clinic on the brilliance of this film, and you should listen to every single one. Also, own Get Out. Watch it over and over again. Make it iconic. Make it the film that people watch every Halloween. Rate it on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb. Tell your kids about it. Drag it to the top of every single horror film list you can think of because it's fucking perfect. And you can see here that there's a hack for changing the stories we tell, right? It's when someone other than the patriarchy controls the narrative. And it's not, it's not because it's the fair thing to do or because white men are terrible at telling stories or become liberals or too sensitive. No, 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 no. Those are more stories that are constructed to, again, point to a monster and project, right? The reason why the stories we tell change when someone who is not part of the dominant narrative tells it is because their references change. Suddenly, the signs and symbols they use point to a different cultural history. Therefore, we go back through the four stages of Baudrillard to step one. So, once again, let's look at Get Out, and I'll show you what I mean. So in the finale, right, in the final scenes of Get Out, Chris is bound to an armchair and subjected to hypnosis through a sound cue. He has a trauma response from when he lost his mother, where he compulsively scratches. This trauma response scratching exposes the cotton of the lining in the chair he's sitting in, which he picks out and places in his ears to dull the sound of hypnosis. This leads to his escape. So there are two really important references here, a trauma response and the picking of cotton. Both of those markers have a deep history in the Black experience in the United States. So marrying those two symbols together, trauma and cotton, and using them together to defeat a white attacker sends a resounding message to all watchers, but specifically black watchers. The story it's telling, despite the history of slavery that was deeply traumatic, you can overcome a racist white supremacist society that is out to get you. Now that, that is a new story. You cannot la-la land something like Get Out because a white man putting cotton in his ears is simply a white man putting cotton in his ears. Change the signs and symbols and you suddenly add a rich cultural history that elevates the entire message. Like I said, Get Out is a fucking perfect film. So for me, the movie Lost Boys does that with that final line. This was the first film I ever saw that exposed what Baudrillard put so plainly. The simulacrum is never that which conceals the truth. It is the truth which conceals that there is none. The simulacrum is true. 
The stories about the monsters are symbols to distract us from the truth. The normal you're supposed to think is normal doesn't really exist. We're in stage four and have been for a long time. But there's hope. And we will get into that hope next. So now that you see we're living in the postmodern, and we have been since the 80s, it should be pretty obvious that anyone who's born after the year 2000 would have no issue throwing out the rule book and forgetting their history, because for them, there is no history. They have no originals. Everything is editable, changeable, and flexible. And in some ways, that gives us a sort of freedom, right? But the challenges that are presented with rewriting everything is this. The next generation will not succeed if they're still using the same codes with the same old flaws and don't know it because they don't have the original text to understand what was actually behind those things that they're referencing. But that's where this podcast comes in. I mean, I did it. I saved the world. Okay, I didn't, okay? But I did explain how it can be saved. So go with me on this. We have to look at the stories we're telling and investigate their roots. Not just the ones in our movies and TV, but the ones in our lives, our own stories, our own meta-narratives about who we are and what we can be. Now, some of you may be wondering why I chose The Lost Boys to end the season on monsters. There's a reason. There's a very, very good reason, and it's always personal, right? Always personal. I did so because it was in Santa Cruz where I first learned about the stories being told about movies and TV. And for those of you who don't know, Santa Carla, in the movie The Lost Boys, was based on Santa Cruz. It's where the film was shot. Everything that I've explained here in this podcast, I learned there. Also, because I was living in Santa Cruz when I was introduced firsthand to the dangers that are faced when we challenge people's perceptions of their own reality based on the stories they tell themselves. So here's where we get really personal. This is a trigger warning that I'm about to talk assault, so please listen with caution. When I was in college, my mother was married to a violent man who raised violent kids. He wasn't the head vampire, but he too absolutely lacked a heartbeat. Now, I was friends with one of these kids, and one night when I was home from college during Christmas break, we were watching TV and a commercial came on. And in that commercial, the voiceover said, America, and showed school children. All the kids were white, normative and blonde and so i did what i do and i used my (laughs) newly found film theory language and i broke down the story that the commercial was telling about america and um i was struck by something that unlike school where these ideas were shared freely and debated safely i was in a violent man's house with his violent kid needless to say my reading of the commercial wasn't well received and I was physically assaulted because of my opinions. I drove back to Santa Cruz on New Year's Day because I needed to escape. And I'm skipping a lot of details here because this was traumatic, but it wasn't as traumatic as what happened after this. Um, You know, it was bad enough to where police were called and there was an intervention. And I didn't speak to my mom for about three months. And when I did, it was made clear that if I pressed charges, I wouldn't be welcome back. Those weren't her rules. It was the man she was married to. What was traumatic was that I was made to apologize to this violent kid, to the violent man to which my mom was married, 
in order to visit her. The problem with living in that house that I could never stomach was it was filled with violent people, and I had to learn to live with it. That was the story I told myself. Upon further review later in life, I realized that it wasn't just my story. It was also a story my mom was telling herself, that that was the kind of man she should be with. You see, she'd grown up with a father who suffered from alcoholism and who was chaotic and violent. He died when she was 17. Alcoholism is one of those diseases that's so fraught with shame and secrecy that I had no idea that my grandfather was an alcoholic until I was in my 30s. My family myth was that he died of a heart attack, not an alcohol-related heart attack from years of drinking. My mom uh, was something called untreated Al-Anon, which meant that the environment I grew up in was very similar to hers and that it was deeply chaotic, but unlike hers, I didn't know why. I was living in the simulation of alcoholism without ever seeing alcoholics. It meant that I internalized everything as my fault, developed a wicked sense of codependence and people-pleasing, and was continually drawn to and involved with romantic partners with untreated addiction and mental illness that caused me a lot of despair. And it was a cycle I could not break. Now, my mom died in 2014, and it sent my life into a tailspin of this unresolved feelings and all these storylines that didn't add up. It wasn't until a friend walked me into an Alamon meeting in July of 2019 that I realized that I was living in this simulation. The disease of alcoholism had made my thinking sick, but I had the power to change the stories in my head. If you go back to the first episode about Frankenstein and look at the environment that spawned the universal monsters, I told you about three factors. One of these was people's reactions to prohibition, which was lawlessness. America has a drinking problem, and it has continued to infect generations of people without them really knowing it. The disease of alcoholism is fueled by shame and secrecy, and we don't look at alcoholics and see someone with a disease like cancer. We look at alcoholics in films and TV shows and see a monster. You can look at the the most recent uh, season of Euphoria and see that, right? We fear that monster, but we overlook all of their suffering. We cast out their truth and shame and secrecy and replace it with stories and lies to cover up the realities of their actions. I look at America as a sea of untreated Al-Anon because we're infected with stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. We use monsters to continue our simulation until we call bullshit. I called bullshit on my simulation July 25th, 2020, when I started attending Al-Anon meetings regularly. I started the very difficult journey of looking at my life and determining fact from fiction. It's what helped me realize I was trans. It's what helped me heal a lot of past trauma. It's given me permission to tell the truth about my life. It's given me the courage to reach for my dreams, believing that for once, I actually deserved happiness. Now, when I left grad school at 22, I was ablaze with hope and determination to be a professional screenwriter. I got tired of writing the stories I saw in these movies and talking about them in academia, I wanted to write and make movies of my own that were different, that changed the codes. I left New York and set out my path to do so, and I was succeeding really, really quickly until my disease of Al-Anon caught up with me and I put someone else's story before my own. Countless times in my life, I have found myself replaying this story 
over and over and over again, like a VHS copy running thin. But now, 20 years later at 42, armed with my Al-Anon program, a new sense of self, and finished with the season of this podcast, I'm once again ablaze with hope and determination to be that professional screenwriter and filmmaker. There is always time to change. Unless you're dead, you're never too old, too broke, too busy, too sad, too anything to change your life. You only need the courage to do so. The courage to change. Now, this is how I started to unravel the stories I've told myself. This may not be your story, and that's okay. There's a saying in Al-Anon. It's called, let it begin with me. Now, you've heard me deconstruct movies across five episodes now. And now, you've also heard me deconstruct a story of my own. You see how it works in media, you see how it works in movies, and now you see how it affects personal storytelling and narratives and lives. Now, you're empowered to go out and do this for yourself. Find your stories, find your truth, rewrite your own codes, signs, and go back to the origins and start again. It's never too late. Never. It has made all the difference in my life. And in the words of Dickie Fox, the sports agent from the movie Jerry Maguire, I wish you my kind of success. Thank you so much for listening to this inaugural season of The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies. It has been my absolute pleasure to walk you through the harrowing world of monsters. I'll be taking a short break and coming back in the fall with a second season on another completely misunderstood topic in our society. Of course, love stories. I may drop some bonus episodes in between now and then as situations come up. Until then, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast. This is Casey Bakamini saying, please, watch carefully. Thank you.